Oh, well, Isabel, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so I guess we'll start with like, you just like moved across the country and um, documented it a bit on your on your Patreon. So like, how, how'd that start? What, what made you want to, I guess, write about a um, place like that? Yeah, so I don't know. I've always had this interest in, in place and geography, like what makes like a place a place or what makes what's sort of the people's different experiences of like the place that they live in. And so I, before I kind of quit grad school or whatever, I was doing like landscape archeology span and I was writing about place and I was interested in like, you know, Henri Lefebvre and like, uh, um, Michel Deserteau and these different like philosophers and sociologists writing about like urban geography and places. Yeah, so it's always an interest I've had. I don't know that I know like the you know, the source the source of it originally. I think in some ways it seems inherently interesting to me. But but yeah, my my girlfriend and I were sort of getting out of uh, the place we were living in Oregon um, to move to the Philly area, and so we did like a cross country road trip and. Um, we did it in like five days. I wasn't getting a lot of sleep, but I was trying to like take notes on the way and kind of record this journey a little bit. And then I've been going back to those notes and trying to write about the places we stopped in and my experiences there. So I, that's kind of coming together as an essay series. So I was like, oh, I'll start a Patreon and I'll just post an essay like every week um, as I work on these. And maybe eventually, you know, these are kind of short essays and fragments and maybe I'll flesh them out or just leave them as fragments and work it into some kind of book or like chat book eventually. Right. Yeah. That'd be cool. But um, like you have, I think a couple like on like the Badlands in St. Louis and I think like one on one's from Kentucky, I think. And so like, were you just like writing the, like, are you one of the writer, those writers who just like is constantly like just taking notes, you know, on your, on your phone or something? Uh, sometimes I, yeah, I usually do, um, I kind of, I have dysgraphia, so like handwriting's really hard for me, but I do sometimes, I did have like a, like a physical journal with me that I was kind of trying to write things down in and I was using my phone a little. And usually what I end up with are like really disjointed kind of notes and images that kind of, I don't know, interface with like my memory in different ways and create these images that may or may not be true to like the actual experience I had when I was in that place in time. But I think the process of like fragmentation and remembering and note taking is sort of interesting in how it comes through. Yeah, I guess maybe that comes some from like, uh, like the well, because I guess like why I'm getting with this question is, like when I read writing on place now, it seems like really influenced by like, Teju Cole or W.G. Sebald or like Walter Ben, you mean, but you're coming at it, I think, from a different angle. And maybe that's like kind of the archaeology thing, but also like you're saying Lefebvre and Deserteau. Yeah, there's also this whole thing I got into as an archaeology student, um, this kind of movement within archaeology that started um, in the 90s called landscape phenomenology. And I know, a lot of these guys are Heideggerians, which, like, fuck that. But um, you have these archaeologists, mostly British archaeologists, um, who are like, hey, let's go out on these landscapes we're talking about and uh, 
and sort of document our experiences on them and what it's like to be in those places and see how we can like fit that into the archaeological record. So this guy, um, Christopher Tilly, um, wrote a couple books where he just like went out to Stonehenge and walked around and took photographs and like wrote little essays about being at Stonehenge and kind of published that as like a, a book of archaeology, um, which has like, it has its issues, but it was kind of like a cool methodology that I got into as an archaeology student. So now I'm like, oh, how do I, how do I apply this kind of landscape phenomenology as a method to something that isn't like, you know, colonizing the past in service to the academy? But yeah, anyway, the thing I get from all this is like, oh yeah, I want to go out to places I've never been before or go back to places I have been and just like hang out and see what it feels like and write about it and try to use that as like, I don't know, I think I'm trying to develop this method for getting at like the material and historical and social ways that like place is constructed and that being in place or moving through a place is constructed. Yeah. And I guess that kind of shows like, I think in your last post you wrote about how like um, not understanding where you're at now. And so, you know, you, you, you sort of dig to understand uh, where you're at. And I guess, I don't know, like that's an interesting way, way to do things, I guess. Like you're, so you're like, it seems like you're trying to both use the writing to understand the place, but also like, use it to make sense of the stuff you're researching too yeah i think and i end up i end up more often than not writing about settler colonialism and white supremacy and these these sorts of you know violent forces because it it turns out that those are often the forces that are constructing these places in the u.s so if i'm digging and i'm like what is creating the set of tensions that we perceive as a place and often, you know, the, the, the strongest tensions are, are this like white supremacist violence historically and in the present and a, a history and ongoing present of settler colonialism. And so I'm trying to dig at those things and I guess get to an understanding, maybe not even at some broad theoretical level, but just personally of how those forces are operating, how those forces are operating in my life and experiences and what my positionality and context is within those tensions. Yeah. Like the top, like the places, you, because of the places you've covered, you know, you've ended up talking about, you know, like the, the indigenous and the badlands and the history of, you know, racist unions. And I think, uh, I think you stopped in Lexington, maybe Kentucky, but I'm, I'm, I might be misremembering. And then, yeah. And also that, that sort of history of the St. Louis arch sort of, sort of all coming together to, to talk about that. And, and yeah, it is a, like a reminder how much, how much of this country, like you really can't make sense of it without the, the genocide or settler colonialism and uh, white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. The arch is kind of a wild example. Cause like, I don't know, I grew up in Southeast Missouri and like you see the arch and it's kind of this big, like tacky monument um you know it's just really huge on the horizon um but there's not like so originally the arch was constructed as part of this this project by the city to gentrify the riverfront and um drive all the um the black people who own property like out of that area 
and kind of further segregate the city. And it was constructed um, by unions, but unions that um, were whites only and were sort of taking all the labor contracts. And so there were, there were some protests that happened during the construction of the arch to um, you know, try and get them to hire black workers. And so there's all this like, there's all this stuff going on around the construction of the arch and all these effects of the arch that lead to further gentrification and segregation and St. Louis, because um, I think everyone, uh, most people are probably aware at this point is like a, a really highly segregated uh, city um, along, you know, race and class lines. And so the arch exists as this kind of historical material artifact of the processes that led up to that. But I think when most people look at the arch, they just see this big tacky monument, you know, this history isn't taught this way. And so I think this process of like being somewhere like St. Louis and digging and thinking about these things can help place, you know, the context of something that I think on the surface, you might appear kind of meaningless, you know, it's just like, it's a big upside down U shape or something. Yeah, I was just like, I'm sitting in a parking lot for this conversation i'm just like sitting between um like a like an evangelical mega church and like a middle eastern supermarket and you know one of the other things you talk about especially in like the last post you did is just like how how confusing like america can be at times with just all the sort of storefronts that constantly change and um like the the ups and downs of the these towns as they go through whether it's like white flight or gentrification or just like contraction as the economy collapses all that kind of stuff and that i don't know like is that is that something you think about a lot or is that just something you've thought about since moving to back to the east coast i think i'm thinking about that constantly like particularly with regard to the urban environment um, so i grew up um in a in southeast missouri like rural southeast missouri and a place called fairdeland which is technically not a town it's a census designated place um it's like kind of just a a rural area that has a post office and maybe a couple hundred people um there's a highway that goes by it and there's a single gravel road um so that's the kind of environment that i grew up in and then you know as a kid um we took a vacation to st louis um I later moved to like a, a town of about 20,000 people, which was my conception of like a big city for a long time. Um, and yeah, so I think the, the urban environment is like, is its own kind of thing that operates in its own kind of way. And it is really, for me still, I mean, now I've, you know, lived in kind of bigger towns and cities. Um, and I also like, and I get sensory overload very easy. So cities are kind of terrifying places in that way. Um, but I'm always kind of thinking about like, how is this place coming to be in such a like, I don't know, on one hand, like cities are really cool. So this is really cool way that cities operate. But on the other hand, they can be extremely alienating and confusing. Yeah. And I guess like um, something you did recently was the, you, with the poetry reading at the the wooden shoe and i guess are you planning on writing about that in this kind of way i might you know i hadn't thought about it um so that reading was great um by the way and uh i don't know if anyone hasn't heard it um 
Matilda uploaded a recording that we did on a troll sound of like the whole reading. Um, yeah, it was sort of a, a lot of different people from Paint Bucket and sort of different, you know, leftist poetry circles coming together. This cool anarchist bookstore. And um, I know uh, KM is uh, writing, they're writing some kind of essay about it. And yeah, I hadn't really thought about writing on that, like from a from a, like a place or landscape perspective, but I might, I might. That's a good idea. Yeah, and shout out to Matilda for putting it on Pearl Sound, and also um, KM did a did a great job hosting it. Oh yeah, yeah, they were great. Yeah, and I guess like, what was that experience like for you? How was it um, both, you know, reading your poems and hearing everyone else's? I mean, I think just getting to meet all these. Uh, all these poets who I'd kind of interacted with online in person was really cool. Um, and seeing like just the power of like everyone coming together in that space and kind of sharing their poetry and also like the power of like the poetry itself to kind of bring people together and be this kind of organizational center. Um, and it made me feel really hopeful about like, so I've been kind of questioning, like, what is the role of poetry? What is the role of art in, like, revolutionary struggle? Um, you were in this situation, sort of world historically speaking, that's um, bad. Um, you know, like, like we're facing, you know, this, like, climate change and the rise of global fascism again. And, like, what is the role of poetry here? And so I've been questioning that a lot. And I think seeing everyone come together around poetry and have such powerful work, um, I don't know, it made me feel hopeful and kind of optimistic about the role of poetry and art in that. Yeah, it really reminded me of something like KM and I have talked about with, I guess, the infurrealists and stuff, just about how important for them doing the, the live community-based events was. And I don't know, I guess... Um, it was it's cool to hear you uh, talk about, talk about that too, and I guess you know what was well I guess what was it like meeting all these people from from online IRL? That was cool. Everyone was really cool, and I think um, like the crowd seemed really cool, really responsive, and I think we had a lot of like we had a lot of different kind of politics represented, right? Like I think KM said something about like, we got positive reviews from the anarchists and positive reviews from the Marxist Leninists. And like, it was cool to see everyone kind of brought together around like around poetry and around art in a way that, um, you know, I don't want to be like too optimistic about left unity, but uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes with that, especially in the poetry world, it's just that there's so little, space for left poetry so like the opportunity to all come together and and talk about it like that must have been you know like exhilarating for everyone yeah it was really cool i think i've i've been in a i've been in a lot of uh you've been in a lot of like trans poetry spaces and queer poetry spaces and you know sort of spaces organized around you kind of different like aspects of identity and things, but I've never been in a poetry space that I think was organized politically in quite that way. Um, and it was just really cool to see and be a part of. Well, yeah, I also want to ask you too, because you read from, I think, a couple of anthologies you were recently in. Um, I know Jamie Baruts, and I think, was the other one the, the Nightboat one? Um, 
that one i don't know if i'm in that one yet i submitted to that one and haven't heard back um but yeah there's uh there's uh jamie brute's uh, radical trans poetry volume one anthology and then i recently had a poem come out in an anthology from uh sibling rivalry press and queer arts arkansas that's a collection of like queer arkansas poets um so I grew up kind of like on the Arkansas-Missouri border, and I lived some of my life in Northeast Arkansas and some in Southeast Missouri. Um, and so I'd written a poem kind of about um, about a, a specific river um, that runs through uh, both those areas. And I got that into this, um, this anthology, which is kind of funny because it's, uh, they had some deal with the Library of Congress that this anthology goes into the Library of Congress special collections and archives vault. And it's this kind of poem about like seizing the means of production and you know, kind of metaphorically about revolution. Um, so I thought it was kind of funny to like get that into the Library of Congress vault or whatever. Yeah, is that the one that ends with the, uh, the Mao quote? Uh, no, no, that one um, I think I think might be coming out in the in the paint bucket scene. Uh, this one ends with like, uh, "Today we take the river, tomorrow we take the boats," which I might have to explain that one a little. So I grew up, um, you know, kind of in this this region that has like a ton of rivers, and we went to the river a lot when I was growing up. And you know, it's all gravel bars and stuff, and you just hang out like on the bank and swim. And then there are people who have boats who just go up and down the river, like in motorboats. Um, and those are, of course, people who had a lot more money than us. We were like, you know, just like really poor. Um, but, you know, people who had trucks and trailers and boats just going up and down in their boats. And so there's, there's this clear separation between the people hanging out on the bank and the people in the boats. And it's a class separation. And so I was thinking about this, the separation between the bank people and the boat people. Um, and so like growing up when the boat people would go by, you know, their boats have these wakes that would kind of splash and create these waves in the water. And as kids, we'd like run out into the wake and like swim in it and play in it. Um, but I was thinking like, oh, you know, why are we so, why were we so happy for the wake? Why weren't we seizing the boats? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That and that kind of reminds me too. Like, um, going up along like the Missouri Arkansas border, like that. Did that? Like, what was that like? Because because like um, with the rivers and stuff. Because it sounds like they kind of weave back and forth between the two states. Yeah, yeah. Where I grew up was kind of like between the current river and the Black River, um, which like I think the current flows into the Black and then the Black into the White River and then the White River into the Mississippi. And so, and then there's like lots of creeks and there's lots of springs. Um, about an hour from where I grew up is uh, this place called Big Spring, which is um, I think one of three of like the biggest springs in the world. Um, their flow like varies from year to year and season to season. Um, so it depends, you know, what time it is, which one's the biggest, but it's like this huge, massive spring that flows into Current River. Um, so I grew up in this area of like, rivers and springs and there's tons of caves um and it's also like it's very poor out there there's a lot of like um 
lot of meth, like home meth labs are like a, a big way that people um, you know, make money and kind of survive out there. Um, there's also a lot of uh, people loot archaeological sites a lot. So there's a lot of like people trying to survive by like, you know, essentially grave robbing. Um, and so that's kind of like, that's the context I grew up in. Is that is that how you got interested in archaeology? Yeah, I think I just grew up surrounded by like, you know, everyone's like, uh, you know, they'll call it like arrowhead hunting. They go out and they look for projectile points and stuff, but also people will dig and look for graves to find grave goods. And there's a whole, um, I don't know if this term is, uh, if people know this term, but archaeologists refer to it as pot hunting. Um, people go out and dig for like ceramics and other kinds of artifacts that they can sell. And there's a huge gray market for this stuff. And so it's not something I was involved in growing up, but it's something that I, I knew people who were involved in that. I knew it was this kind of like fucked up thing that people were doing where they're like robbing graves. Um, and I was curious about like the history of this. Um, and I think that was probably, yeah, one of the things that, that got me interested in archaeology early on. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me too, like if you read, I don't know, like National Geographic, so occasionally you'll see articles like this where, you know, some region of the, uh, some region where the U.S. has destabilized. Like I remember reading articles to this effect, like about Iraq back in the day, <laughs> about, you know, it'd be, it'd be these articles sort of bemoaning the fact that um, the war has led to a upsurge in like the trade for rare you know, like museum artifacts or whatever in, in those areas that were destabilized. And it's like, yeah, the same thing happens in this country. It's just, you know, not, it's just something I guess the powerful don't, don't care about for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big market. The way it happens where I grew up often is people will find caves um, and caves often have burials and things in them. And people will go into caves and they'll dig them out. They look for whatever artifacts they can find, whatever burials in the caves. Um, and there's a long history of this, of like skull hunting in the U.S. and this process of like um, robbing indigenous graves for museums, for the U.S. government, for the black market, whatever. Like this is an ongoing process um, of sort of colonizing um, history and the present. Um, but people will go into these caves, they'll they'll rob the graves, dig them out. And then once the caves are cleared out, they'll use them as uh, places to cook meth and hide out in. Yeah. And I guess like the connection I in like my head for this would be like, you know, the, the both, both um, these pieces being grave rob that you're describing and the stuff like whether it's in Iraq or now Syria, you sometimes see articles about this. And it's like, you know, the the point is always that, you know, they end up in the Western museums and institutions, you know, oh, it's the, oh, they'll be safe in the British Museum kind of logic. Yeah, there's a there's a cool book that's kind of more like uh, it's written more at a popular level than like an academic level. Um, David Hurst Thomas, who's an archaeologist, wrote called Skull Wars. Um, and it's about like the Kennewick man. um controversy you know where archaeologists had um had uh had found this this human burial this like nine thousand year old human burial in uh kennewick washington and they wanted to like keep it for science and indigenous people were trying to get that burial um, repatriated um, but it's also about this history of of skull hunting and it goes into how like uh 
Franz Boas, who's kind of like the father of American anthropology, was involved in like skull hunting um, for like, you know, it's essentially the U.S. government who were paying for skulls of indigenous people for museum collections. And like, you know, we can talk about this as a black market and there is a black market, but also like this is a, this is something with like an official history in the United States. Yeah, I think calling it a gray market is probably, is definitely accurate. It wasn't until the 90s, I'm trying to think of the specific year, but uh, at some point in the 90s, um, they passed the uh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act that um, it basically said that museums had to stop robbing indigenous graves and that they had to go through a process to return the things that they stole from indigenous graves. And so like I worked at a, a big natural history museum in grad school and they had just started um, to undergo this, this, uh, this NAGPRA process in the 2010s. And you know, their problem was they have all these looted grape goods and, um, you know, bones and things um, stolen from graves and they don't know where they're from specifically and so they have to go through this whole process to try and figure out like what people these graves even belong to you know get in contact with you know the nations who these burials belonged to um, and try to like return them and so it's this very slow process and uh and yeah, I mean, there's still just like, there's just a huge vault of like um, ancestral remains and grave goods that have been stolen over like, you know, century and more. Yeah, and that's, I don't know, that to me, that's just how all of museums kind of operate. And I don't know, like, I guess something that always, that always comes back to me is like, the relationship between like poetry and museums because there's always i always see like readings or poets get residencies at various museums and it's always i don't know it seems like a very fraught thing to me because of that history and what museums represent yeah i think for sure and i'm more familiar with the context of like you know the natural history museum or the like cultural history museum um, but you also see this shit in art museums, and I'm thinking of like, you know, the Nelson Atkins um, in Kansas City has like a big modern art collection. They also have like some mummies. Um, they have stuff like they have like a whole wall from a, a Buddhist temple, I think, in China that they like cut into pieces and then reconstructed inside the museum that has like murals on it. They have um, they have a Clovis point on display, so it's like a I don't know ten twelve thousand year old um, indigenous uh, projectile point or knife um, that they have on display without any real historical context. It's just like oh look at this you know beautiful work of art or whatever. And so art museums, especially these like bigger art museums, are often functioning in the same way as these settler colonial institutions. Yeah, exactly. And then oftentimes, too, there's with some of the more prestigious pieces or pieces by famous artists, there's, you know, there's, I mean, first off, there's the whole connection with like the art scene and money laundering. But then there's also, 
you know, the whole history of a lot of these paintings ended up being looted from very in various wars or whatever, or, you know, more recently, all the Nazi art that got, eh, I guess, redistributed through the art world through less than legal means. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no. I, I did grad school at a University of Oklahoma where they have an art museum. Um, so Fred Jones Jr. Museum of Art. Um, and they have some paintings that um, were like stolen by Nazis. And then the museum ended up in possession with them through some private collection. And then I, I believe like uh, a family um, who had, you know, originally owned those paintings was trying to like reclaim them. And at least when I was there, it was a, a big thing that the, the university was refusing um, to return them. They were like, you know, we, uh, you know, we legally bought this from the people who bought it from the Nazis who stole it. So it's ours now. Yeah, well, I guess something, too, I wanted to ask you about is I think I saw you were starting the, the Transzine Archive Project. And I guess, like, how do you how do you envision that, like, in contrast to some of these institutions we were just talking about? Yeah, so I think my big goal with that is to have some kind of archive um, this totally outside of the academy and totally outside of these like these institutions that I don't think have the interests of, of trans people. Um, so there's often this thing happening within trans literature where it kind of like people don't have access to old stuff because it's all in these zines and things. And then you'll have like a, some claim to like, uh, like I think in 2012, uh, Topside Press published uh, this big collection of trans short fiction just called The Collection, um, something, something transgender vanguard. And this was kind of controversial because it was like, you know, are these people the vanguard? Like there's been this continuous um, history of, of trans literary and cultural production that people are kind of a part of but it's always represented as a kind of rupture. Trans writing and trans people are always framed as new somehow. And there are some academic archives that have trans writing and things in them, but they're sort of inaccessible to people who aren't in the academy. Um, they're ultimately under the control of these institutions that you know, don't have our interests. And so I want to try to take what I learned, you know, working at the museum and working in archives to try and develop an archive that's totally outside of the academy that people can access um, and find things that they might not otherwise be able to find. And I don't totally know what I'm doing. I'm kind of figuring it out as I go along. You know, I have a little experience in this from the museum. Um, it's not going to be perfect, uh, but I think. I do have a pretty hard stance on like, I will not connect this to the academy. I will not accept support from academic institutions in this. Um, I won't seek it out. Um, if it's offered, I'll say no. Like, I don't want any connection to those sorts of institutions. Yeah, that's something I've thought a lot about, too. Like, for this podcast, for, this, for, this, for the same reason, I, too, would not accept academic support. And I don't know if it feels to me like being part of that that world just, I don't see any way that it ends well, especially for, um, I guess, a leftist political uh, sort of ideology. 
Yeah, I think the academy in general is increasingly hostile to those sorts of politics. Yeah, and you know, I've I've seen you know there are other poetry projects that are affiliated with these institutions, and you know they have a a long track record, and you know I can you can easily go and look at the Penn Sound Archive and see who ends up you know documented in those recordings, and it's not you know it's people affiliated with academia, it's not you know working class folks or frankly anyone else and it's i don't know i mean so when you're looking at the transine archive or what i mean like what kind of what kind of work are you like looking at i guess exactly if that makes sense right now i am i'm more focused on stuff i can get that's already digitized um and stuff that's not because i don't have a lot of like space or archival boxes and folders to store things in yet and uh, or like money to acquire things um but I'm I'm looking for like PDFs and things of of zines that maybe people um, you know self-published basically that people might not have might not know about or might not have as easy access to. So I've had a couple of people reach out who do have academic affiliations and so have access to like academic libraries and archives that I don't have access to, and they're like, hey, I can send you things from these. Um, I kind of started um, just with Jamie Brutes. Um, uh, trans women writers booklet series just like oh I already have all these pdfs so I can sort of build that as a collection and build a catalog for that and figure out how I want to build a catalog so I took all those and I made like a little access database and started cataloging all those and then um, you know, the idea is just to keep um, reaching out to people um, you know finding new sources of of these zines and things that are self-published and kind of adding them to to different collections within the catalog and then if somebody's looking for something specific um you know say they're looking for you know trans poetry from the 90s or say they're looking for like you know trans science fiction or something then I can go and query the database and say, oh yeah, hey, we have this and this and this, and you might want to look at these things instead of someone just like having to do a Google search and maybe, you know, not turning up any of this stuff. Right. And it sounds, so it sounds like um, send your PDFs to Isabel maybe. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a zine, um, if you know of some cool zines, uh, past or present, um, if you have like a, like a paper zine collection that's maybe not available online um, that you want to like try and digitize, um, definitely get in touch with me. Yeah. And something else I, I, I meant to ask you last time, but I don't think I got around to it. And I asked, um, I asked Wendy Trevino this question recently too. And I was like, how, so how did you first hear about um, Jamie Baruch's uh, writing and work? Oh, wow. I don't even, I don't even remember when I first encountered it. I think, you know, I was, uh, I started getting involved in the kind of trans literary scene, I want to say around like 2016, so not that long ago, like Topside Press did a workshop in New York um, that I was a part of. And so I knew a lot of people involved in trans literature from that. And, uh, that was when I think Jamie was doing the uh, Trans Women Writers Collective, but before she started the booklet series, 
Um, and people were familiar with her writing kind of in that scene. So I think I just started hearing about her writing and kind of seeking it out um, from there. Yeah, yeah, a lot of these things are just like, you know, either I know people through Twitter, or I've just met people through workshops and stuff, and people talk about different people's writings, and they're like, oh, have you read this? And so that's a lot of how I hear about this stuff, like, because, you know, especially with self-published stuff, you know, there's not like, there's not a marketing budget for any of this. Right. I think, and just a, I didn't answer my own question when I asked Wendy last time, and I think, I think I came across Jamie's writing on Tumblr a few years ago when she was maybe doing her first novel, I think. But like, like with you, my memory of this is, is fuzzy and it was definitely like a kind of more word of mouth thing than something I can pinpoint. Yeah. And I think on the one hand, this kind of way of, of finding new writing and new work is like really cool and organic and community oriented. And I think leads to, I think is, um, I think it's better at like forming community than say like, oh, you know, I heard about this book because like Grey Wolf published it and spent a bunch of money marketing it or it was like on the shelf at the bookstore and I picked it up. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's not conducive to the kind of like the kind of historical continuity where like you can say, oh, this exists within like a continuity of these other things that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I also have access to these writings because these things kind of come and go and fade in and out of, of sort of community consciousness. And so I think this is where having a, a community developed and community oriented archive comes in is we can kind of preserve stuff as it's happening. We can go in and pull stuff up from the past that people might not be familiar with. And of course, you know, your work with um, with with archival um, leftist literature um, is kind of doing something similar. So I think maybe kind of a little bit of an inspiration there. Yeah, that was James's idea. I'm just the one now going through old books to find the find the quotes or whatever. But I guess, too, I wanted to ask with this stuff like. Um, um, I guess for me, it's. It, like I always feel like the the time pressure to try and record this stuff while it's while it's like happening, and I guess like you're saying with the the word of mouth stuff, I always have something that's hard for me with that too is um, I always try and want to credit the people who you know put me onto something, and with a lot of this stuff is really hard because so much of that stuff gets kind of lost in the internet ether. So like, do you feel that? Do you feel that kind of I guess pressure or like, I guess, fleeting uh, nature of some of this stuff? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm always grateful to to people who, um, who point out new work to me. And maybe that's something with the archive. I've been thinking about how, like, you know, people are maybe pointing me to PDFs where I get them secondhand and maybe I don't have any contact with the person who wrote them and maybe I don't have any way to contact them. And so there's a question of, like, does this person want their writing in the archive? And in some cases, I can just contact a person online or whatever and ask. And in some cases, I can't. And so there's, on the one hand, there's that question. And on the other hand, there's a question of like, how do I, because I want to build an archive that's like kind of the product of community. You know, I'm not that in touch with the scene. I need, you know, people, people all the time are, um, are sort of sending me new things that I don't know about. And so how do I credit the people who are doing that too? Because that's like, you know, that's real work. 
that's kind of going into an archive or even just going into like me knowing about stuff and then going into like things that later become influences in my writing. And yeah, I think my only real answer to that is that I want to feel like ultimately I'm giving something back to the community that's putting the work into that. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's yeah, good. That's exactly how I I feel about it. I want to make sure that, um, yeah, that I'm giving back and giving something to everyone that I guess they also enjoy or will bring a new perspective or make them think a different way. And yeah, I, I I've been needing to ask about this like generally. Um, so it's okay if you don't have an answer, but like I remember, I remember like maybe five or six years ago, like a lot of people um on twitter and also like writers i'd see you know in their bios and stuff would would use the word curator like to describe what they one of the things that they did and i feel like um that's kind of been lost over the years and not necessarily because that attitude has changed but because it's just so difficult it seems at times to to remember who who like pointed something out to you or who sent you that pdf that you used that that like you know, trying to change the way you thought. I don't know. I guess that's something I'm, I've been trying to work on improving for, for years and maybe, I don't know, maybe writing more frequently would just help with that, but I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Just some random thoughts there. Yeah. I don't know. There's like, on the one hand, there's like curation as like, you know, pointing out something to you that you might not know about. On the other hand, there's curation as this kind of violent process of exclusion, like not, you know, picking what not to point out to people. And so I think there's a tension there. Um, I know with the archive, I don't want to be like, oh, this gets in the archive and this doesn't, right? Like basically if it's, if it's literary in like the very broad sense of the word and it's created by a trans person, um, also in the broad sense of the word, then I want to include it. But I want to include it with like specific enough information and metadata that if someone wants something specific, we can kind of use the database to pull out those specific things. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that make that makes sense. And I guess something that I think about a lot when I'm doing this podcast is like as a supplement to say what you or Jamie are doing just having an additional because I feel like one way to whenever I hear a poet talk I feel like I always learn so much about their work that I'd never learned by reading their work so I, I think about that a lot when I'm doing this so yeah that was a long way of saying yeah that that does make sense to me yeah there's also like you know, I can't really lay claim to any kind of objectivity because I'm seeking out particular things. And so like I started with the booklet series, building the catalog, because I think the booklet series is really cool. And so I, you know, I included it. Um, if I, you know, if I, I might've been more inclined to like think something else was really cool. And so I'd include that first. And so there is an element where, you know, if I'm the one who's ultimately putting things into this catalog, then I am going to be kind of biased or whatever about what I include. Obviously I can't like, just like assimilate everything that exists into this archive. Yeah, I very much want to do. I very much like feel that urge with my with this podcast, but realize I can't because of time constraints. Talk to everybody right now. I, it's just not practical. Right. Unfor right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I 
Like, um, oh, never, never mind what you were saying. Oh, no, I was just agreeing with you. No. Oh. <laughs> well, I guess uh, something else we wanted to talk about, too, is the, uh, I guess, continuity and rupture. Um, and I guess in terms of what we were just talking about, how'd you, how'd you, how'd you come to that book? How, how was that brought to your attention? And maybe, uh, sorry, what is that book for people who don't know? Oh, yeah, Continuity and Rupture is this book on, um, on Maoism um, written by uh, uh, John Mufawad Paul. People call him JMP, I think. He's kind of a, he's like a Maoist blog and he's a philosophy professor. Um, so anyway, I, I got interested in this kind of Marxist-Leninist and Maoist idea um, about scientific Marxism that the sort of revolutionary theory is actually a science in this very, like, I don't know, almost hard science sense that, like, new revolutions are experiments and we're moving towards some kind of understanding of class struggle as law. And so I was talking about this on Twitter and people kept recommending this book, Continuity and Rupture, to me. So I've been, like, slowly reading through it and trying to get a better understanding of the kind of philosophical outlines of this kind of, I don't know what to call it. Um, it feels like Marxist scientism to me. Like it feels like the understanding of what science is is a little faulty in all this, just from like my background as a social scientist. Um, but I'm trying to get a better grasp on it. And I'm not totally sure how I feel about it, but I'm also like reading very closely and very slowly. And I'm like halfway through chapter two of this book. Yeah. And I like, I've listened to a, a, a few podcasts and I read a little bit of it and like one of the things that I, I remember him saying that I thought was weird and maybe troubling and maybe I guess to your point was um like he was sort of saying like he doesn't he, he was like I don't know why leftists today have kind of distanced themselves from science in some ways and I don't know I feel like there's also at the same time as he's trying to get to this sort of hard science view of Marxist Marxism uh, well Maoism, we could say, and I, I feel like he's trying to use science to maybe get that kind of, I guess, scientific credit for for those for those ideas. But at the same time, I feel like there's also like a long leftist critique of science, and you know, there's also a whole, you know, hundred year history, hundred and fifty year history since Marx with, and we've seen, you know, science make some uh, mistakes. I guess you could say. I wouldn't say they were well. We've seen science do some things, and uh, um, I guess, do you have those same criticisms of science? Yeah, yeah, I do, and I think, you know, coming from an archaeology, anthropology background, like, my uh, my kind of specialization was in uh, paleoethnobotany, so I was interested in relationships between people and plants and history, um, and in using kind of botanical methods to figure that out. And so often the questions I was interested in asking were more in the realm of like the humanities were very interpretive, but the tools I was using were the tools of, of, you know, the hard sciences. Um, and so I kind of had a foot in both worlds um, when I was doing that. And I, I feel like I have a little bit of a grasp on both of those things. I'm not like an expert in either. But when I'm reading these things about scientific Marxism, you know, I see these claims about science that like don't match up with what I understand science to be. And that's kind of where a lot of my skepticism comes from. 
So I see like, uh, like in continuity and rupture, um, uh, JMP makes this claim that it would be, um, be arrogant to assume that like the hard sciences are based on ontological premises, um, that those are sort of like, he calls them quasi-religious, um, and that similarly you wouldn't assume that Marxism is based on these ontological premises, but like the hard sciences are like, you have to proceed from ontological premises, right? Like you're not like, they're not some way to view a reality that's entirely external and objective and like you can get at like the one right answer. That's not really like science's kind of this process for getting like closer to a kind of, I don't know, practical truth. Like, and I think that often when people are talking about scientific Marxism, they're talking about like, these ideas that are coming from like 19th century scientism that just don't at all match up with like the actual practice of science, like that scientists are doing today. Yeah. That's like where the trouble with this is for me to some extent is, you know, like I was saying, there's a whole, we have, we've, we've had 150 more years of, of science and I don't know, some, some things have changed um, a lot, but I guess too, I want to ask you, cause you know, I, I, uh, think you're more interested in anarchism too like so how does this um, compare to say like I don't know Kropotkin on, on the ants yeah yeah so I think Kropotkin someone who is really interested in science too and um, kind of really interested in some of the uh, the really kind of like terrible racist anthropology that Marx and Engels were also reading um, but uh, yeah a, a cool thing in a uh, in, uh, um, shit what's the title of the book the bread book no 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 the other one um uh-oh are we gonna get canceled now i can't remember it either <laughs> mutual aid a factor of evolution oh so that was like yeah yeah kropotkin's book where he talks about ants and stuff he's kind of looking at evolution and he's like oh we've kind of viewed evolution by natural selection as this purely competitive sort of um you know the hobbesian war of like competition and actually this is influenced by like capitalist ideology and a lot of evolution is occurring as a process of, of cooperation um, and this actually turns out to be to some extent a good critique of like early 20th century evolutionary theory like there is a lot of cooperation and niche construction and things like that driving um evolution by natural selection um you know, there's this thing now called the, the extended evolutionary synthesis that takes into account like niche construction and things. It's not just like, um, not just competition driving evolution, basically. And so this actually turns out to be like a pretty cool text from a biological and uh, like scientific theory perspective. Unfortunately, the text like later gets into a lot of like fucked up assumptions about indigenous peoples that are coming from like racist anthropology at the time. Um, so there's a lot to critique there. Um, but I think like looking at this kind of scientism, this idea that like, you know, science has the one right answer. Uh, science is always kind of a product of culture. And so if you have a culture that's saying, yeah, everything is like competition, everything's like capitalism, then you're going to have this 
this evolutionary science that comes out of that that's very shaped by that ideology. And if you question that ideology, you're going to get some different ideas about the science. It's not like, it's not totally objective. It's not a way to view some, you know, really, truly more real than anything else reality. Right. And while you were, while you were talking about the, the Kropotkin book, I, that it brought me back to JMP. And I feel like he kind of has that same sort of, um, because of the view of science that he's using, you know, like with, in terms of thinking about um, all the various revolutions of the past as these sort of experiments where we can see what works and what doesn't work, et cetera. Like, I guess, like, what would it mean to think about the revolutionary history from sort of the mutual aid Kropotkin standpoint, if that makes sense? Yeah. I, so I actually think um, there's something really good in this idea of like looking at these, you know, these uh, world historical revolutions and learning and building theory from them. Like, I think that's, that's good. And that's something that continuity and rupture is building on and advocating. But I don't think it requires the, like, the shell game of scientism that he's imposing on it. And that's what's so weird to me is, like, why, why this turn to the language of science? Because you don't actually need it to have a convincing argument there. You don't need that to say, oh, let's look at the Paris Commune. Let's look at the Russian Revolution. Let's look at, you know, the Chinese Revolution and see what we can learn from those things. I think, um, I don't know, I tend to think in terms of like an interpretive hermeneutic with things like that. So you can, you can look at these things and you can look at our present context and you can kind of go back and forth between them and, uh, uh, what gets called a double hermeneutic where you're, you look at, oh, what we're doing now and what happened in the past. How do those things fit together? What can this teach us? How can this sort of bring us closer to a more correct understanding or something? And then you just try things and you go back and forth. And it's more of like, it's not this deductive, nomological process like hard sciences. It's more inductive and it's more interpretive. And that's often what's happening in like social scientific interpretation. And so I think if you want to argue that like Marxism is a social science, sure. But once you bring in this like hard science thing, it feels like a con to me and it feels like an unnecessary con. Like, I don't know what purpose it serves. Yeah, I was really struck and puzzled by that as well, because when I was listening to him do some interviews, he he mentions like, you know, the way he talks, it's clear he's like read like, say, Foucault and he talks about, you know, like the like Derrida and and um, even like radical black scholars like um, Moton or um, habeas or like the book habeas viscus you mentioned, and it's like it's it's very strange to me because it's clear he's aware of these critiques, but he he just seems to be doubling down on this, and I I don't have a sense of why that is necessarily, and that's strange to me. But I guess too with all you're saying, it also just brought me back to what we were talking about at the beginning and the way you've written about place as trying to, I guess, maybe think about these things in a different way. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's like a hermeneutic process for me too. I'm like, oh, I'm in this place. This is my experience of it. But like, it's, it's not quite like making sense to me. So then I try to dig into the history of it. And then I'm like, okay, now I can look back at my experience in that place. And it looks a little makes a little more sense, but now I have new questions. 
So now I go and I, you know, try to dig deeper into like the material realities of how that place is constructed. And then I look back at my experience. And so it's this process of going back and forth and reflecting and interpreting and trying to get to like a deeper understanding. And I don't think that's reflected in this model of like hypothesis testing toward law. Oh, you don't think it's reflected in this hypothesis? Sorry, you cut out the hypothesis testing model. How how is that? Yeah, this this model where you're just like testing the hypothesis and trying to develop law. You know, the like um, the deductive, nomological kind of model of science. Right, and I guess like for for you, like what who are some who are some writers that you like look to as um, doing like the kind of process that you're that you're talking about that you're doing in your writing? Like who? I guess who's a, an important writer for you in that regard? Um, well, as far as writing... Not to put you on the spot, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, so uh, Barry Grass just released a book of essays called Hall of Waters about um, uh, the place she grew up in Missouri, um, kind of in western Missouri, which I think is doing this really well and has been kind of an inspiration for me. A really great book. I'm trying to think of like poets who are, who have really been an influence in this kind of thinking about space um, and place. Um, Lorraine Nidecker, I think, is uh, is someone who's like writing about um, where she lived in Wisconsin um, in really interesting ways and was kind of an influence on my poetics in that regard. Um, especially more recently, I got her. Uh, I'd read like a few poems of hers that I found online that were really cool. Um, and I finally picked up her like collected works and started really digging into it. And that's been kind of, I think, having an influence on my writing. Yeah, I could definitely see that um, for her work because like, I don't know if you, but um, I think if you go online, I know it was this way in the past, but um, there's like a, a website you can go on. I think it's for her archive maybe. And you can actually like see the list of books in her library but it also has all the annotations and like underlying passages in her books that she was like interested in or in the comments she made and the way like the books she's interested in and the comments she made like yeah that's totally true that she was i think thinking about place and capitalism and all this stuff in the in a similar way i i, I that's really interesting sorry i hadn't thought of that before oh yeah that's cool i haven't seen that i'll have to check that out yeah i'll see if i well i'll put it in the notes to this show if i can find it but yeah i'll send it to you if i can find it it is really interesting cool cool yeah is there are there any other writers you're interested in like that because i feel like um i just i'm just really interested in this too and i feel like there's a lot of people maybe out there doing or interested in the same kind of process i guess yeah i'm trying to think um i mean i just wrote I just wrote about this, but uh, I read or you know listened to the the audiobook uh, pretty recently for uh, Samuel Argelini's Dahlgren, um, which I think is like wow, there's a lot going on in that book, um, but there's a lot about place in there that I found interesting and that I've been thinking through. And I think Delaney's work, not all of it, but some of it, does like touch on these things in really interesting and I think generative ways. Yeah, oh, that was the other thing I meant to ask you about was Delaney and, and Dahlgren. How? So, how did you? I'm not. I know this is a big question, but like, what are your, like, what are your thoughts on the book? Because I know again, it's a huge book. So, sorry, sorry, that's a kind of imprecise question. But like, how how did you? Well, I guess how did you come across it uh, first off? Um, 
going back to our earlier conversation, how did you come across Delaney and this book specifically? Um, so I don't know. I was interested in reading more Delaney. Um, sometimes I have trouble getting through like a whole novel um, in part because I have like an eye issue that causes like double vision and stuff and can make uh, like reading um, like physically reading kind of difficult sometimes. Um, and so I listen to a lot of audio books. And so I just looked um, through like the public library account that I had the audio books that were available. There's like a handful of Delaney audiobooks uh, read by Stefan Rednicki. And I was like, oh, Dahlgren, that looks really cool. Um, that seems to be one that, that people are into. So I'll just like, I'll just load that up and give it a listen. And I think I didn't really know what I was getting into at the time. Um, but yeah, the way Delaney writes about. Um, sort of post-apocalyptic city of Bologna and kids' experiences there and the way they're disjointed and kind of alienating um, really resonated with me in the ways that I'm interested in, in urban spaces as being these kind of disjointed and alienated places for me to be in. Um, so that was a lot of what I was thinking through as I was, was reading through it. Um, of course, there's a lot more than that going on in the book. Right. And, and I, uh, not to change the topic a little bit, but like, yeah, for me, audiobooks are really important, too, just because, you know, I work a 40-hour-a-week job, and I don't have the time to always, I don't, I don't have as much, as much time as I'd like to read as I'd like, and, like, audiobooks are one of the best ways for me to read, <laughs> to read books now, and also, if, if you're listening, if you're, if you or someone you know works at Wesleyan University Press, can you please get them to do audiobooks of Samuel Delaney's books, because I think that's why not many of his books are audiobooks, is because I think a university has university press has the rights and I don't think that they do audiobooks as much. So unfortunately it's hard to get Delaney audiobooks besides like Babel 17 and Dahlgren. Yeah. I think there's like, there's like maybe like four, maybe five of his books that are audiobooks, and that's all I can find. Yeah. It's frustrating. Not even like, um, like I don't think any of his recent work, whether it's, um, let me see dark matter or, or no, Dark Reflection. Anyway, Dark Reflections, the recent one about the poet, and um, or like um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. None of that stuff is is audiobooks. And I feel like oh, this is just me complaining about lack of audiobooks, which is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> In general, I feel like I want to see like small press authors and people self publishing doing like audiobooks if they can, or like poets doing poetry albums. Um, I think it's a it's a cool way to access an encounter work that's a little different than like reading it on the page. And I I don't know, I wish we had more of a culture around that. Yeah, same here cuz that's I don't know. I, well, I feel like as we have less and less time to read and less and less leisure time, podcasts and audiobooks are increasingly popular as bleak as that is in a lot of ways. But uh, Oh, this is something else you were talking about doing recently. Like, um, you were talking about doing a double album on Bandcamp for I think some of the, the reading you were just at at the Wooden Shoe. Yeah, yeah. So we recorded the whole Wooden Shoe reading and uh, put it all together for Pearl Sound. But I was thinking it would be cool to take those readings and um, intersperse them with like music, and so have different poets associated with this scene. You know, because a lot of us also do music and sound art type stuff. Um, record some tracks that are like uh, four or five minutes long and then have like a reading 
and then music and then a reading and then music and release it as like a double album it can kind of it'd be kind of a cool multimedia thing yeah that sounds really cool i i forgot about that until just now that yeah that's something i'd I'd really want to see too yeah i've been interested in this intersection between music and sound art and poetry um it's been a while since i released any music stuff but i did uh did this ep called uh deep new unstable against that had some spoken word poetry stuff um overlaid on a soundscape that was produced from field recordings in uh, portland and los angeles so kind of thinking about and working through this thing i keep talking about with like the urban environment and place and alienation and so i've been thinking about that intersection of all these forms and ideas and wanting to explore it more yeah, I think that reminds me. I think Averin on their last podcast, the last episode of Waves Breaking, had a poet on who was interested in this, but I'm blanking on, well, I'm blanking on which episode it was, so I can't, it was one of the more recent ones. They had someone on talking about trying to make poet, like do poetry and kind of a, a audio, like do the kind of audio collage stuff you're talking about. Um, but I guess like, um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I think, I think we covered everything I had in my head this morning. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that way too, but, um, as is always the case, I'm certain I've forgot to ask you something. <laughs> yeah, there's always next time. I might ought to get some breakfast though. <laughs>